I have much more to say to you, more than you can now bear. But when he, the spear of truth, comes, he will guide you into all the truth. He will not speak on his own. He will speak only what he hears, and he will tell you what it is yet to come. He will glorify me because it is from me that he will receive what he will make known to you. All that belongs to the Father is mine. That is why I said the Spirit will receive from me what he will make known to you. Okay. Rosie wants to go home and skip the sermon. Uh, she's got it down now, I think. She kind of runs the whole way. You have to catch her, Lisa, is what I mean. This Sunday, we honor and come together in the name of the Trinity, who is three in one, God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. As I mentioned in the email, in which I misspelled Trinity on the title line of the email, which was proud moment in ministry, let me tell you. Um, as I mentioned in the misspelled email, it's weird to have a Trinity Sunday because every Sunday when we gather, we gather in the name of the Trinity. We gather in the praise of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And it's, it's so much so that at the beginning of, or at the end of each service, we sing the doxology together, which is this hymn of praise. And we sort of look at the ways in which that is bound together. Actually, lately we've been using uh, Collects from the Book of Common Prayer and other resources at the beginning of the service that also sort of open our words with the names of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. So why have a Sunday for what you do every Sunday is a good question. It, it comes at this weird spot in the church year because, as many of you know, we celebrated Advent in which you sort of anticipate the birth of Christ but also uh, the return of Christ at the same time. And then we move into sort of this time of year where we walk with the gospel in both its revelatory aspects called epiphany and both its suffering aspects in which we move to the cross called uh, Lent. And then we celebrate that glorious resurrection and Easter. Then we have this season of resurrection where traditionally here we focus on sort of equipping the church. This year we did a series on Life Together by Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And that season ends with Pentecost, the coming of the Spirit. And then we celebrate Trinity Sunday, which, which almost kind of seems like, oh, you had to have the Spirit to reveal to know the Trinity, which is at once both somewhat systematically true of the Scriptures and at one sense uh, brings you close to committing a giant heresy. Um, we had a, a young woman come into our church for a long time, um, and she took, I took her out for coffee to get to know her, and she wasn't a believer yet. And she told me, she said, Pastor, I loved your sermon on Trinity Sunday. Actually, I think you preached that Sunday, David. So uh, she didn't love my sermon on Trinity Sunday. But she said, you know, I've had this dream that's like this perfect allegory for the Trinity. And I said, well, my advice to you would be to tell no one ever. Um, because they all, at some sense, lead to a certain error. Now, I didn't, I'm not going to play it this Sunday, but there's a, a, a great clip of a, on YouTube of two um, Irish men meeting St. Patrick, and they say, Patrick, can you explain to us the Trinity and don't use any of the big language? Uh, I should have played it. I'll put it in the email. But, the, you know, he says, well, it's like this clover, and they're like, hang on, Patrick. 
that's uh, modalism. And he's like, modalism. And so, like, like each time they, he, he says something, they correct him with some ancient heresy, heresy, two or three I haven't even heard of. Um, and then finally, he just yells at them uh, the Athanasian Creed. And they say, well, why didn't you explain it that way? Um, which is, it's just an amazing, I should have played it, right? Um, but such as today, is this, it's this Trinity Trinity. Now, I'm, I'm going to set sort of a time limit for today's sermon. Have you ever bitten off more than you can chew? Um, Park is going to help me install some flooring in the back office at what's going to be my office at the Parsonage. Um, and I already feel like I've bitten off a bit more than I could chew there. The point is, is, is this Sunday um, is often a Sunday where I really want to get into the deeper aspects of what it means to worship the God who is three in one. And part of one of the things that backfires on me on these type of Sundays is um, I don't think less of your intellect. Um, so instead of trying to go to the lowest common denominator, I'm like, these people run businesses, they work hard, they do great things all week, most of them are better at math than I am, so let's go deep into this and not realizing that I might not know a lot about a lot of things, but I've probably spent way too much time reading theology. So... Um, uh, but I bite off more than I can chew, which means I should probably stop with the introduction. But what happened is, is there's this, I read this two volumes, this is not one book, um, this two volumes after I finished seminary called Eccentric Existence. And it left such an imprint on me that I've read it two or three times. And not only that, I've, I once on a pastor's call said, I would struggle to go to a church with a pastor who hasn't read that book, which is just totally arrogant and dumb to say. Um, and then the pastor said, okay, well, let's read it together. And of the six who started, four made it to the end, and they really enjoyed it. Uh, the two others, they didn't even make it to the first meeting. So, um, so, but one of the things that I try to do is sort of condense that into a way that can become meaningful to us. One of the things that I want to talk about is that the Trinity comes out of this notion of what is the correct language about God? How are Christians who have this Old Testament that's radically monotheistic going to speak about this God who appears in Jesus Christ to be this sort of three in one, this Father, Son, and Spirit? And incidentally, right after they have this revelation, nobody wants to deny the monotheism. Not Paul, not anybody in the book of Acts. They see the radical monotheism coherent with this God who is somehow now revealed as Father, Son, and Spirit. So the church from about the time of its birth up to about the first fourth century um, tries to work through what is the proper language for this. And the word they settle on is Trinity. It's, it's not a word that's in our Bibles. It's not a word, um, it's an it's a image, it's an idea that is in our Bibles, but the word itself doesn't appear. Um, and it's something that comes out of the tradition and it's named as such is that we worship a God who is Trinity. And one of the ways in which that kept getting worked out is because you had a whole bunch of people who we now call heretics who wanted to say other things about God that didn't seem right. And that helped them sort of hone this concept. So for the first 400 years, there's this challenge of how are we going to properly language God as these people bound by these two books with this revelation? This word Trinity is brilliant. And I've, and I've tried to put, sort of put it in how do we speak about God language before? But I think in our era, 
that one of the greater challenges that we're going to try and ha have to articulate, and we're struggling to articulate, is who are we? It's turned into an anthropological question in the big word, which just means, what is a human? So if the early church struggled with the language of what is God, who is God, how is God in this way, it seems that in the 21st century, we can't seem to grasp who are we. And it plays into what we see often going on in culture at the moment, from what does it mean to be born male and female? What does it mean to, um, uh, uh, to be, have races um, between black and white? What does it mean um, uh, for human sexuality? What does it mean for human flourishing? Like, you know, if, if being a human is consume as much as I want, how does that fit with this stories we have in the Bible? That's, that's sort of, and so we have all these dominant narratives at the moment that want to suggest a human being is this type of thing. And oftentimes, the default assumptions have I think in culture have gone far enough from scripture that we need to question again, what is this person who's created and blessed by God, redeemed by Jesus, and, and brought to consummation by the Spirit? That we have to sort of ask again. And so this book um, attempts to sort of wade through the waters of, of human anthropology all over again um, in 900 pages. Um, and I think it's 1,200, actually. Uh, but, um, and he does so in a way that almost doesn't answer any of those questions, but lays the groundwork for us to be able to think through those questions again. So the title of the book, um, th this is Trinity Sunday, Who Are We? The title of the book, uh, Eccentric Existence. Um, one of the things that I think that comes out of this book and, and as we think about human anthropology today is we'll, we'll get to the Bible today too, one. <laughs> and two, um, uh, we're going into the book of Deuteronomy all summer, so just hold on and we'll be, you'll have so much in-depth study of the Bible you'll want to quit. Um, it's Theology Sunday, cut me a break. Um, uh, existence as eccentric is sort of one of the things that Kelsey wants to say to us. Now, how many people have heard that we're created in the image of God as sort of any discussion about what humanity is? And it's become this sort of static concept. Now, one of the things Kelsey sort of abandons at the start of his project, and I think wisely so if you trace the way the image of God is played out throughout Scripture, is that concept as the grounding principle of human anthropology. What is a human? He doesn't think is best answered by that question. And part of the reason is, I think, the challenge for today is that static image of humanity, we're created in the image of God, becomes sort of um, a blanket exemption for discerning what humans should do. Well, I sharply disagree with what that person is doing or this thing is doing or what this movement's about. Um, yeah, but they're all created in the image of God. Sort of shortcuts underneath the conversation of what we should be having. It sort of makes it just an ingrained characteristic to us rather than a way in which we thrive in relationship with this God. It sort of moves it away from that. 
And what Kelsey wants to say is it's not that we have an ingrained existence within us that makes us valuable to God, but we have a set of relations that do so, which is the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. It's relations that sort of bind us in our meaningfulness. And those relations are outside of ourselves. They are eccentric to us. So we don't make our own or don't innately own, have our own value as this image of God, but that we find that we are imaged by God from the outside, not from the inside. It's God's relationship to us that names that, not just innate characteristics. Now, uh, I should say, that to some extent, this is controversial in modern theology today, but I think Kelsey does good work to explain why it's needed. But what eccentric also means is, is this was a term um, astronomical, uh, not astronomical. Carla, what did, what did uh, astrology, yes. Um, when they started to talk about that the earth is no longer eccentric or center of our universe, they said that's eccentric. One of the things uh, conceiving of our existence as eccentric to God is we no longer become the center of our universe. God does again. And one of the challenges in the modern world is that we, the pull within ourself of authenticity, which is a very popular word today, becomes thy truth and not something exterior to us. That it pulls us someplace else. And so if you remember three summers ago, uh, two summers ago when we went through the book of Leviticus, we talked about that be holy as I am holy is in some sense setting up another place for our self-understanding. Not be holy as you are true to yourself, but be holy as the one who is exterior to you is holy. It's not just ingrained in yourself. And so eccentricity, eccentricity, as existence, it, there's one other thing I think is funny about this is we think of weird people as eccentric. That's a nice way of saying they're, they're weird. Um, and I've one of my favorite slogans for today is keep Christianity weird. Um, like, it just shouldn't be the, the same as everybody else. Let's, let's keep it weird for the moment. So there's another way in which eccentric works as a way of understanding our existence. So we'll get into the, the nerdiest part of today's sermon. I've got 10 minutes, so we'll move fast. Um, I really want to set a time limit because this could go on forever. Um, uh, we are created. And the, the language that, that Kelsey uses in a sentence structure is annoying b um, when you read the whole book because he's very specific. But one of the first things, the first sort of pull, and he views these sort of as a triple helix, that there are three sort of strands tied together. And so we are created by the Father, He'll, in his fullest sentence, say, through the power of the Son, by the Holy Spirit. So he's always tying these three things together. But certainly created, he ties more into this Father realm. And in creation, God, and follow the bold words here, because you're going to see it in the next slides too, is that in, cre in being created, the Father relates to us. So to is sort of the bolded word in that sentence. And so because of this, we live on borrowed breath. That's eccentric. It's not our own breath. We live on borrowed breath from the God who has created us. And we respond to this movement in faith. All right. <laughs>
uh, God cr created by the Father, who in creation relates to us. We live on borrowed breath that comes to us a gift, and we respond as faith. We read Psalm 8 this morning, which is now posted in a font too small for you to read. Trust me, that's Psalm 8. Um, and what Psalm 8 preserves for us is this creator-creature crea distinction. It says that what are human beings that are you mindful of them, that you care for them? The creator is the one who this is in praise to. You can read Psalm 8 in a bad way as a glory to what man is, but what it actually is a glory to what God created humanity to be. And so God has made them this way a little lower than the angels and crowned them with honor and glory. You made them to rule over not the work of our hands, but the work of your hands. And being created by God... We sort of have this way in which we are set in this place is what Psalm 8 names for us. And it sets this creator-creature-creature uh, distinction apart. And as we've joked here before, it would be great if Park said one morning, look at all these creatures gathered here to worship today. Um, it would offend some of us. And yet it would be truthful of what humanity is. We are creatures of a gracious God who has set us in a good creation. It's so often, and this is, this is what's great about human, um, this sort of understanding of human anthropology to some degree, is it begins with good news before it begins with bad news. God has created us. He relates to us. We live on borrowed breath, whereas a lot of Christian anthropology, particularly uh, understanding of self, begins with fallenness. It is deeply true that we are fallen, but with embedded in the narrative of fallenness is the goodness we came from and the goodness in which God wants to bring us back to. It's not just one thing to say we are fallen things, but that God has this redemptive work working through that. Uh, one of the phrases that I say often here is that, uh, we'll skip that actually, because it's going to, I'm on a clock. Um, and so faith flourishing by borrowed breath means that we practice wonder, we practice delight, and we practice perseverance. I could go more in depth into each of these, but we can see in our own selves that we practice wonder in creation, that we practice delight in being this, this sort of part of creation, from meals to enjoyment outside to being celebratory in the world. And the practice perseverance one may seem like the oddest, but it's because we live now in this fallen place. We practi practice perseverance for God's renewal and reconciliation of these things. That creation as it was created by borrowed breath, or created by God and we live on borrowed breath, is not what it could be yet. And so we practice perseverance for that day of renewal. Future consummation. This is the second helix uh, of David Kelsey's work, is that it is the Holy Spirit. Uh, and we talked about this last week. The Spirit relates above, around, circumambiently to us. That means we, we often struggle as Christians. We'll pray for the Spirit to work within us, but we also spray, pray for the Spirit to work in the world. And we pray for the Spirit to be active in our relations. And so circumambient is his word to sort of rescue us or give us some way to say yes to all those things, above, around, through. Um, and because the Spirit relates to us that way, we live on borrowed time. Um, the, 
the Spirit is drawing us towards our final consummation in God. And in this, we respond in hope. Now, I'm sure somebody can guess what the last one's going to be. We respond in... No, we did that with the first one. So what's the last one remaining, Carla? You know, love. <laughs> so um, this is like a... It's, is this foreshadowing? Nicole, I ask you because you're the one teaching. It's a little foreshadowing. Like you could figure out that what's coming because of what's happened. Um, still on the clock. So... Um, <laughs> Uh, but we live on borrowed time. Now, I love this image to say that time is not our own, but we live on time that is borrowed as we move towards this consummation. And that gives us this place of hope in the world. Cornell West, uh, an activist, you might have seen him in the news this week. He's often interviewed, African-American activist. But he was interviewed by Rolling Stone once. Um, and they asked him, they said, are you an optimist or a pep pessimist? And he said, I'm neither. I'm a prisoner of hope that we exist in hopefulness in the world. From the John reading that we heard this morning, that he, the Spirit, will not speak on his own. He will speak only what he hears, and he will tell you what is yet to come. The Spirit tells us of what is yet to come in our consummation as we are not left as orphans in the world. And so we respond on hope in this flourish and borrowed time. And our practice in this one is practicing joyous hopefulness. And I love this way he says, in the now of the not yet and the not yet of the now. Um, if you're familiar with um, Christian eschatology, which is another big word for last things, is that we say we live in a now and not yet world or a now and not yet kingdom. Already and not yet is another way to phrase it. We live in the already of what God has done to redeem the world in Jesus Christ and through the work of his spirit in God. And we also live in the not yet in which a creation which is still in disorder um, and not that. So one of the, one of the ways I think he, he's talking about this is how we live in the now of the not yet. Um, well, we'll start with the bottom one because we're Christians. Bad news first. Um, we live in the not yet, that was a joke, of, of the now. Um, we live in a world that's still in disorder. And you can see that just simply by watching the news the last two weeks. But even all that before then, it's not just human relationships that are in disorder. It's creation that's disordered in this virus. It's, it's that things are deeply disordered in the world. There is a not yet and yet at the same time, there is this now, there is this coming kingdom, this future fulfillment, which we have foretastes of according to the scripture. Now, one of the, and, and the for, clearest foretaste of it is, is what we're sort of arguing here, is in that gift of the spirit, which tells us which is yet to come, which we pray out. It's God's deposit of hope in our lives. One of the best ways, I think, to think about this is, is to think of, um, there's two ways, I think, that work both, and they're both, uh, one is imagine you're a prisoner of war and you've built a radio that announces that the war is over. And so you're in a prisoner of war camp and you and your uh, fellow soldiers, friends, have built a radio that is telling you that the war is over. The people who control your camp don't know that the war is over. What you could live into that moment as you await your liberation from that bondage is joyous hopefulness. You know that the battle is over, that, that emancipation is coming, and that liberation is near. 
Christians, through the deposit of the Spirit and witness to Jesus' resurrection from the dead, have seen the end of the chaos in this earth. We know what its fulfillment looks like. So that's what it means to live in the not yet of the now. To live in the now of the not yet is to live in a world in which we can forgive because we know that forgiveness reigns in the end. It's live in a world in which we can hope that despite the current disorder, that reconciliation comes on the other side. And that we can imbue and celebrate practices around this. What does reconciliation look like in our midst as a sign of the now, even as we live in the not yet? Redeemed by the Son of God who comes among us, we live by another's death and we respond in love. So this is the last of the, the triple helix that, that Kelsey wants to say. These three things make up what it means to be human. That God relates to us, that God relates uh, around us, and that God relates among us. That we live on borrowed time, that we live on borrowed death, and that we, or borrowed breath, and that we live by the death of another. And the practices which sustain us are faith, hope, and love in this what is a human is answered by these questions. And that Jesus comes among us and lives a life among us is what responds, enables us to live in love. The Romans reading we read during the worship set, you see at just the right time when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might possibly die for dare to die, but God demonstrates his own love for us. And while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We live by the virtue of another's death, and that teaches us God's love first so that we can love others. So love flourishing by another's death draws us into these practices of love of God and love of neighbor. And Someday, when we have more time, I would love to talk about the, the tradition of, is this one command, two commands, or three commands, knowing that love of neighbor also comes with as um, love your neighbor as yourself, possibly being a third command. But what I think is true is that as you find yourself drawn into any one of these, you're drawn into the other. It's almost as you're pulled in that direction. It's as you grow in your love of God, it doesn't come without growing in your love of neighbor. And if you grow in your love of neighbor, it doesn't come without growing in your love of God. It's like um, you can't pull one string without pulling the other to some degree. And so it's through the gift of Christ being with us that we can model and live into this space of what it means to be this way. And so this names what we are as God's creatures, as God's creation, and brings us to praise. Um, well, I will pray, and then if you would join me in our hymn of praise to the Creator. When a little, I was close um, uh, on time. But uh, I'll pray and then we'll sing this hymn and then close in our holy, holy, holy together too. God, you have gifted us with your name and relationship. Father, Son, 
Holy Spirit, the God who is three in one. We ask that we would grow in the insight into this revelation. What does it mean that you are Father to us? What does it mean that your Son came among us? What does it mean that your Spirit enacts with us towards our future consummation? Questions today of what is a human are difficult and hard to weed through. But through coming to your name, through coming to the ways in which you've graced us and saved us and guided us, we ask that we may see again and mine into the depths what it means to be made in the image of your Son. And so we sing together. Praise God from...